This episode of Echoes in the Bone is brought to you by the Institute of Cultural Policy and Innovation, ICPI. ICPI, providing services in business development and coaching. ICPI, leaders in online training in event planning and intellectual property. Visit our website today at www.icpi-ja.com. Cultural appropriation is a very interesting thing because to me, it's cultural appropriation when you don't tip your hat. I feel like a lot of the time, even in Jamaica, and I'm, and I'm guilty of it myself, I don't know enough about the precursor of what's on the radio right now. We, I don't know the history of our old music. It took me going to Midem in France and a white Rasta brother Gave, stopped to give me on Friday night a ride to, um, to the hotel. And the guy put in a cassette and educated us for the next 45 minutes on our own music. And when I heard it, I was like, oh, I can hear where this influence what's on the radio now. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dennis Howard. On this episode, I speak to Steve Wilson, the manager of internationally renowned artist Sean Paul. Steve speaks about his own journey and gives some interesting stories about working in show business in Jamaica. Steve Wilson, welcome to Echoes in the Bones. If thanks, brother. Good to see you. It's good to see you. It's a pleasure having you. So tell us about Steve Wilson. Uh, we know that you are a man about town, big timer in the entertainment industry. Where did it all start for Steve Wilson? Where did it all start? I would have to say it started when I was seven years old. I was living in Michigan. My parents were both doing their PhDs at Michigan State University. And my older brother, who's five years older than me, um, was, got into the, the rock group KISS. And he brought home an album. And he put the album on. And while he was playing the album, of course, you know, in the old days, we actually had records. So it was a double album. And we folded it out. And there was this massive picture of them in there doing this crazy, you know, live show with all these risers and fireworks and all this kind of thing. And I was like, what, what, who are these guys? What do they do? What is, you know, this is a job, you know? And my brother was like, yeah, this is the best rock band in the world, you know? I didn't even really need to hear the music. I was already kind of sold on the whole image. And then when I heard the music, it was, you know, very catchy rock music. And I've always been a kind of a rock kid because of that since then. And I said, I looked at the guy playing the guitar and I said, that's the job I want. I want to do that. And from I was seven years old, I knew that's how I wanted to be a lead guitar player, right? Now, <laughs> that didn't really pan out. Um, I, I, I don't seem to have the musical chops to play an instrument or sing. But as soon as I found that out, I said to myself, well, I'm going to be in this business one way or the other. So what is it that people around these guys do? You know, who, who helps them with the creative decisions they make? Who helps them with, you know, their, their careers and getting around and doing these shows? There must be people behind the scenes. And it took me a while, and I worked it out. And um, by the time I got to university, I mean, all through high school, I was basically biding my time, you know, and I started throwing parties when I was about 14. So I was already in the entertainment industry, as far as I'm concerned, from when I was 14 years old. Um, and then uh, when I got to, 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 to university days, I went to UWE. And back in the day, UWE didn't have the course that you know, you know, so wonderfully helped to offer. Mm-hmm. Um, so kids like me who were not you know the great sort of traditional students didn't really know what to do didn't know where to turn you know um and so i ended up in mascom because it was the closest thing to me to, to to what seemed like i wanted to do um it had some modules in there that definitely spoke to entertainment 
and, and I had some great lecturers in there, you know, um, who, who, who helped me to kind of hone what skills would be useful to me in later, you know, later years. Um, before I even graduated from UWE, I remember the, the day of my last exam, a friend of mine, Marvin Hall, called me and said, hey, they're doing um, interviews to work at Reggae Sunsplash up at Stony Hill, this office in Stony Hill. And I said, yo, can you get me in? Can you get me, a, 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 you know, an interview? And he said, yeah, man, go, go ask for Sharon Burke. And I went up there. Uh, this is the day before my last exam, so I should have been prepared for my last exam. But instead, I was at the interview at Solid Agency, Jerome Hamilton, Robert Stewart, who I still work very closely with, as you know. Um, walked in there, did an interview, must have taken about 20 minutes. And they were like, when can you start? And I said, what do you mean? And they were like, can you start now? And I said, what do you mean no? They are like, no, can you start now? And I said, no, I have an exam tomorrow. They said, well, what time exam finish? I said, two o'clock. They said, be here at three. <laughs> and that was it you know what I mean and from then I never really looked back it was just from one job to the next job to the next um, as I sort of as I say I like to say I cross trained in the music industry and the entertainment industry from yeah. managing you know club nights at Mirage to managing G-Jam studios to putting on events of my own managing artists of my own with my company Mystic Urchin uh, me and Fahrenheit doing a whole bunch of stuff together working at Island Records working at Tough Gun you know, doing all these different things of, you know, I don't remember what point we, you and I first crossed, um, you know. Yeah, I remember it was when you were working at Sunsplash. And, uh, oh, was that early? I didn't yeah, man, yeah, man, Sunsplash. And then you remember, yeah, this office down in Crossroads. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So that was the second, the second sort of coming of Sunsplash on the Ray Barrett, yeah. Yeah, on the Ray Barrett. Right. I submit you. And so tell us about those early days at Sunsplash, the first iteration of it, and then with the, the last time with Ray Barrett. Well, the, the, the first iteration of it was really, really interesting to me because I, I, my job was supposed to be, um, at first, very first day was, I was to try and get ads for the Sunsplash magazine. And that basically consisted of, here's the yellow pages, start calling the numbers and asking people if they want to put an ad in the magazine, which very quickly became very frustrating. Um, and I asked to, you know, so to do things that were more music related. And, and, and I, I eventually um, got to the point where Hugh Masakela was coming that year. And that was back when Sunsplash used to have like what they called World Beat Night. And I was so excited because like, I, you know, I was a student. I was a musicologist from very early on. And I was a big fan of Dermot Hussey. And Dermot was to interview Hugh Masakela um, the night that Hugh came in. And I was tasked with picking up you from the airport, taking him to the hotel, turning him around very quickly, and getting him over to Dermot's studio. Um, and that was like the highlight of my life at that point. I mean, just meeting him alone and getting to drive there and then sitting there with him as Dermot interviewed him. And Dermot had such a wealth of knowledge of his career, which is expansive, as, as you know. Yeah. Um, and just sitting there and that being my first interview that I witnessed was just like, like the bar couldn't have been set higher. It was the most interesting host with the most interesting artist, you know, yeah. being here in Jamaica for just it seemed like that's the most inopportune thing because I was so excited by the time I got to Sunsplash and then World Beat Night had such a poor turnout. I was upset. You know, I was like, yeah. people don't realize this legend is in Jamaica, yeah. you know, and yeah. they didn't. But anyway, that was, that was really like a massive highlight for me. And from there on, it was like I had the book. I got the pleasure of interviewing you, Masakela, during that period. But I interviewed, wow. him, I interviewed him on site because we were carrying the show live. That's right. And yes. it was one of the most amazing moments for me because, you know, we all grew up on you, Masakela. But what struck me about 
the, the, the man was his humility. And uh, yes. not only that he was humble, was that he was such a, a nice person to be around. So it was one of the best interviews that I've done. It was one of the highlights of my career at that time. Yeah. And then the, the next version of Sunsplash, you were there. And after that, what, what did you do? Where you moved on to? Um, Tough Gun and then Island. So, and what were you doing at Tough Gun and, and Island? So Tough Gun was a marketing representative. And that was when Sedella Marley had um, started that iteration of, of mm -hmm. Tough Gun, where we started to sign artists and do photo shoots and wrote bios. And we did press releases for every single song. So it was, it was almost like a boot camp of, of, of music marketing. Like I learned to write bios and press releases and, and I did it daily, if not weekly, yeah. um, you know, and, and, and faxing them out to people, including you, and, 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 and trying to push these records and then going to radio with records and sort of realizing what, what is the first time I was, became aware of um, something that I call Studio Fever, which yeah. is when you're sitting in the studio and a song play and everybody thinks it's the biggest hit just because you're in the studio when it was created. Yeah. And then you walk, you, you take it to a DJ at radio and the DJ is kind of like, you know, so this record is not going to work, right? And, and you're like, oh, oh, what do you mean? Like, yeah. If you were there when the song was made, you would never yeah. say that. You know, and it's like, boy, if you could find a way to, to market that feeling, I think every song would be a hit. It is important that a lot of people realize that if, if, if you're in the music industry, you have to have certain skills. And you yes. talk about writing bios, and uh, doing press releases and all of that. You only did that in such a, a, a great manner because of your training. Correct. In my Correct. So elaborate yeah. on that. Right, so I mean, this, what I always say to people is, look, if you go to university, even if you're not sure what you want to do, because what it does is it trains you, it teaches you how to think, it teaches you how to research, and it teaches you how to apply knowledge. And that, that is something that, that, can be, that can be useful across the board. So mm -hmm. I took that I took that knowledge to my job at Tough Gang, where I would then meet the artist, and then I would have to interview the artist, and then I would have to extract. Sometimes the artists didn't know what was interesting and what was not interesting, so I'd have to extract stories from them, and that's where journalism training came in, where I'd be like, okay, well, you know, asking probing questions, you know, like an artist would say, I'd say, where are you from? And he'd say, where he's from? And I'd say, well, you know, which other artists came from that era? Do you know any other artists, you know? And, how did growing up there, you know, affect your music? And, you know, what kind of music did you hear growing up? And what did your father listen to? And I'd, sometimes you have to really dig and needle, yeah. you know, to, to, to get them to, to open up and say something that you can say, oh, there is something that I'm going to throw in your bio, you know? And sometimes, especially with an unknown artist, you really had to find a story, you know, and find a narrative. And that's where you start to understand the, the importance of the, of the journalism training, you know? And then to be able to present it in such a way that, now me, the reader, can feel like I now know this artist without actually ever having met them, you know, and being able to do that, um, it becomes challenging, especially after you, you, you know, you write one by in a week, okay, fine, but if you have to write two or three or four, you know, in the space of a week or a month, you got to start getting really creative, you know, because all of them going to start sounding the same, and you don't want to do that, and then you have to grab your thesaurus or say, looking for words that, that mean infectious or catchy, Ah. Or words that mean pulsating or pounding, you know what I mean? You're just yeah, using these yeah. words over and over, yeah. you know, or the rough streets of Kingston, you know, and you're like, oh, I got to find a different way of saying that, you know? So it really taught me to, 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 and I got to lean back on that training a lot. And other people who were there, you know, would also be like, wait, yo, how you, how did you think of seeing it that way? You know, and yeah. I'd have to yeah. sort of help people, other, other people learn 
what I was doing and how I, and how I came to where I was. That's the first time I learned that what my training you know, was useful for. So you had to work also with a lot of radio personalities and journalists. And that yeah. took a particular type of skill because yes. you know, you know that that arena is very tough to really convince people about new artists and to get a foot in, especially back in those days. So yeah, what kind of skills you develop to, to, to deal, deal, deal with that situation? Well, I think that's another place where MassCom was useful to me because in MassCom you had it you know, broke into um, print, radio, and, and TV. And I specialize in TV, but you still had to be, you know, you know sort of familiar with, with, with the other mediums as well. And so interestingly, um, like Colin Hines is somebody that was in my class and we ended up working on projects together and his perspective was always very different than mine, you know? And so it helped me that when I had to go to radio, I had an understanding of what a radio person might be looking for or what a radio person might be thinking about, you know, and being able to understand that it was so much more valuable to walk into a radio station with a record from an artist, but also a drop from an artist. Because mm -hmm. then the, immediately the DJ is like, oh, so you did something that I can find useful. Oh, that's awesome. You actually thought about me before you brought this record to me, you know, or things about, or think, things like thinking about what time of day might this record fit in or who could this record get played behind or what that's on the radio does it fit with, you know, or if it doesn't fit, then why should it fit or, or why should I create a space for it? You know, and understanding these things, these questions that DJs might have in their brain. And, and, and their process and understanding their process. So when you walk in, yeah. you have some sort of pre-knowledge and, and, and a way to kind of say, hey, I understand what you do. So I'm trying to make it easier for you. And that's always something that I think was, was, was appreciated by DJs. You became an, a creative entrepreneur. That's what we call it now. But at that time, we never had that fancy name for it. And it was certain <laughs> music. How did you get to that point where you decided, hey, I'm going to do something on my own? So while I was working at Island, um, I, I became very aware of these sort of, as they called it back then, the alternative music in Jamaica scene. Because of my social scene, I was going out to these bars and these clubs and seeing these artists playing out and saying, there's no medium for these guys. There's no management for these guys. There's, no, there's nobody writing bios for them. You know, they're all doing it themselves, whatever friend doing it. And it was a very kind of catch up kind of thing. Um, and that's when I get got to know Fahrenheit, who had a, was working on his his first album back then, yeah. and it was it was it was reggae influence, but it certainly wasn't what was being played on the radio or what was deemed as you know uh, oh if you want to say the normal you know yeah. Jamaican music at the time. And he had people like John Bent, and he had people you know he had all these artists at that time sort of coming up in that genre. Gibby, you know who you know played um, heavy metal, yeah. um, and a lot of artists, you know a whole slew of them. And, and uh, Joe Rockwell was another one, and Gordon Scott. And, and, and so I said, well, at first, my first thought was, people are doing events. People seem to be drawn to these events. People like to watch these artists perform. Let me put on shows. So I started doing shows, especially at Carlos Cafe, um, Crossings Cafe, Village Cafe. Those are places I used to call it the cafe circuit. Mm -hmm. um, and we started doing shows there. And those shows were doing well. So I said, well, then these artists should start recording things and, you know, selling their CDs at their shows, seeing as that's where, you know, it was, it was a live music scene that has, has not been repeated, honestly, in Kingston yeah. since then. And it's something that really burns me. And it's one of my little pet peeves that I get on my soapbox and talk about. But it's, that is what made me start Mr. Kirsch's music. 
And so when I left Ireland, instead of looking for another job, I just said to Fahrenheit, I said, yo, let's try and make this work. You and me manage artists together. We'll produce artists together. We'll do shows together. And we did it for a good, a good while, but maybe four or five years before I think I took up my next um, job. And even in that next job, I still continued to push that, you know, that narrative of, of, yeah. of this music. And we ended up on the cover of Billboard. Fahrenheit was on the cover of Billboard magazine at that time when, you know, all these reggae artists were trying to end up there. He ended up on the cover of Billboard. Let's focus a little bit on the fact that there was an alternative music scene. Now, a lot of people are not really aware of this. And they, we always stereotype Jamaican musicians as dancehall or reggae yeah. and yes. even mental, but not anything else that is not dancehall or reggae. And there was this movement because people, Jamaicans are eclectic, Jamaicans are cosmopolitan and Absolutely. so influenced by all kinds of stuff, especially when they come from uptown to and they're exposed to a kind of different type of music. And so nobody really associates the, the, the Jamaican musician with that type of music. But that's totally wrong, not true. Facts. I mean, that's absolutely totally wrong. We, yeah. we have influenced so much music around the world. You know, ska influenced punk. Groups, groups like Madness and a lot of those ska punk bands were very heavily influenced, um, of course, by Jamaican music. The specials, English beat, um, all those bands were very heavily influenced by what was going on in Jamaica. Um, we, we, we created hip-hop. By, by sending somebody to New York, Cool Herc, who began to do what he was doing in Jamaica with R&B records. A lot of these things we don't really get credit for, but we've always been the purveyors of what's next and what's cool, right? So, so to me, it just made sense that this alternative music thing should, should come up and also be serviced and be yeah. given a chance. You know, we went to Midem um, through the support of Jam Pro, we went and we did, you know, it, it never really took off for a variety of reasons, but, but a lot of those artists did go into other um, other bands or other creations and, uh, and other lines of, 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 um, of music. Um, yeah. uh, so, so somebody like, like, like Mile High that created, that, that eventually gave birth to Tessa, you know what I mean? And, and Tammy and Roots Underground and these kind of bands also came up through that whole scenery as well. Yeah. Um, later on, I, I did a, a series called Tuesday Night Live at Village Cafe, which had more success and more artists, successful artists came out of it. When I kind of learned that, people were, were more open to receiving a quote-unquote alternative out of Jamaica if it had a strong reggae influence or at least a very Jamaican stamp on it. So they could say, oh, yeah, I, I understand that that comes from Jamaica or I can see why that mm -hmm. came out of Jamaica. They weren't really too ready to, 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 to take on like a full-on rock band out of Jamaica or, or, or R&B artists out of Jamaica. But the thing is, the, the influence is always there because even with reggae and dancehall, there, there has been extraction of other genres to incorporate it in, in, in our course, always. And, and we see there is a discussion about the new forms of Jamaican music, which I had advocated for 10 years ago, to say that dancehall is, is, is a, a kind of thing of the past. And what we're doing is a totally different stuff. We have had a discussion years ago when yeah, yeah. I labeled it one beat, and now yeah. we even move to another level where 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 we are being influenced again by hip hop, which was influenced by our music. So it's full circle, and we're yeah. talking about trap music, and we're calling it trap dancehall, and, yeah. and, and 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 all of that. So I yeah. I sometimes 
Can and Afrobeat too. Don't don't forget that. Oh, Afrobeat yeah, is yeah, also yeah, something yeah, that yeah. remember some, circling. Yeah, because remember, like a burner boy and stone boy and all of these guys, they actually started out doing dancers. Yeah, exactly. And people don't know that. People don't remember yeah. that. As I say, it is it is is this is is the one black music from from Africa and 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 from the global south. Is the one. Yeah, it's, it's, it's diaspora music, you know. Reggaeton, reggaeton is is it is it started basically in Kingston, go up to New York, then to Panama City, and then to San Juan, and it's That's right. It's, it, it it is it is a one influence, and they draw some stuff from New York, and and and, and it became reggaeton, you know. So yeah, yeah. At least they kept us in the name, though. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. But them kind of Latinize it and and try absolutely, it. They absolutely done that. They don't talk about it in terms of dance hall and stuff. The only time they might remember it and, and there is any reference to, to, to us is in the reggae and also the Dembo, which is the, 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 the Shabaram song. The Shabaram, the rhythm, exactly. Which they, which they don't even know what that means, but. <laughs> yeah, I heard, I heard a, a, a leading ethnomusicologist saying the Dembo song is an anti-gay song. And I said, "Wow!" <laughs> oh boy, you need to give that. You need to give that one a call. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I know him personally, so I'll, I'll give him a. a, a, a <laughs> give him like a heads up there. Yeah, I'll give him a buzz one of these days. So, so all right, we talk about the the, the the alternative music scene, which was vibrant, in a sense, and it it, it influenced a lot of things, as you mentioned, Tammy Chain, people like Fahrenheit himself, and others. Jovi Rockwell has done relatively well in terms of, of having a, a presence in, 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 in the music scene, both here in Jamaica and overseas, but not the yeah. big, 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 big success that right. we would want, but at least there is, there is, there is a body of work that has been done. So your, your, your next big project was what? Well, um, my next big job was, was, was G-Jam, working at G-Jam Studios yeah. with John Baker. Um, which was pretty awesome again. And, and, and interestingly, you know, everything, everything ties together. So my whole um, foray with, with the alternative music, when I went to work at G-Jam, it made me have an understanding of different genres of music and, you know, why different varying tastes and also made, left me with a list of, of very talented and able musicians that I had. So when I was at a studio and an artist would come to Jamaica, book the studio and say, oh, I need a guitar player or I need a drummer or I need a bass player or a keyboard player or a vocalist or whatever, or a songwriter. I had, a, I had this massive laundry list of artists that I could draw from. Mm -hmm. and, and they were, of course, always very, very happy to be able to have, you know, um, the, a, a, an ability to know, come and do some work because a lot of them were, you know, um, journeymen. Like in the daytime, they're doing something else and at nighttime, they might try and make music. So, you know, so, so it was very cool to be able to have that connectivity, but it's also allowed me to, when a, when a band like No Doubt came to Jamaica to do that famous album that they did with all the reggae artists, um, I was able to understand what it is that they were trying to do. And, and it was great to see the connectivity, exactly what you just finished saying, which is the yeah. reggae to the rock and them going, yo, we're, we're, we came to Jamaica because we know we're a reggae band. We yeah. want to do, and, and so we drew for Sly and Robbie and we drew for, you know, and they drew for um, Bounty and, and, and Lady Saw. Yeah. And, you know, the other people ended up working on that album. And it was really cool because to me, it was kind of like all aspects of my musical tastes and musical journeys. So I was like crashing and then crescendoing into one, you know, sort of beautiful project, which mm. I, you know, I, 
was at the time when it was happening, I was like, well, am I having Studio Fever or is this really a fantastic album? You know? Yeah. And then when it came out and won Grammys and did so well, I was like, oh, okay, cool. So in that case, I wasn't wrong. I'm going to put you on the spot here because uh, you, you bring up something that sometimes we kind of put under the rug. That, that collaboration had the potential to be the beginning of something great in terms of continuous collaboration between yes. North American artists which, who are superstars and Jamaican artists who are superstars, but superstars only in Jamaica, in Jamaica. and not right. international thing. I think that, that that whole arrangement went south with all kind of uh, machinations about uh, controversial issues and legal thing, and it messed up the potential for great collaboration with other artists, and it also messed up the artists in question in terms of their yes. global reach. Yes, now, absolutely, one hundred percent. Why why do we shoot ourselves in the foot all the time? Can you explain? So, I, I, I always like I always like to, to to say that I don't know the intimate, intimate, intimate details of every single decision that was made in that whole scenario. So yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it alone in terms of trying to tell the story. But I will say this: we have this crab in a barrel mentality in Jamaica, yeah. where as soon as you see somebody crawling out the barrel, you have to grab them and pull them back down. Yeah. Now, the crab who is being pulled down has a choice of saying, you know what? I'm going to ignore you and I'm going to go about my business. Come what me. Yeah. But that doesn't happen. More times than not, we're so concerned culturally with how we're going to appear, right? That we say, boy, I, I don't care about my international success, you know. May have to look about Jamaica. So I'm going to shoot myself in the foot just so that I can be able to walk around Jamaica and, 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 and be able to say, yeah, man, when him did call me, we sunk to his level. And, yeah. I, and, I, and I went back at him. Because yeah. it, it really ruined both artists' chances. I don't know if you remember the whole thing. Like I said, I don't want to get into the details. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Subsequently, after that, the artist who tried to pull down the one artist yeah. then had another opportunity at the international thing. And that other artist now said, oh, here's my opportunity to get back at you. Right? And, yeah. and that's what happened. So instead of both of them turning their guns and shooting their guns in the same direction and yeah. creating propulsion for the genre, they, did, yeah. they turned their guns at each other shot each other in the foot, the foot and made both each other had to limp into the next year. Is it, is and, it, is it a, a, a function of the unmanageability of Jamaican artists or is it a, a function of the dysfunction of artist management in, in Jamaica? Because both, all of, the, all of the artists in question, you know, had management, you know, so it's not like they were, well, doing, they were doing this thing. By if, the, you want to call, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Right, so I, I I think I think that what you just described is a vicious cycle, right? Now, a lot of these people, their their manager is somebody who them know from round away or whatever, somebody with no training, no knowledge, no connections, no worldview, you know. Um, and so all they're looking about is is their little corner of the earth, you know. And so yeah. when when the artist says, "Well, look, this guy did this. What do I do now?" You know, th their perspective is the same as the artist. And to yeah. me, the, the, the job of a manager is to, is to whether you agree or not, it is to, it is to present your artist with other possible perspectives, yeah. right? To yeah. me, it's like, look, if you're going to decide what you want to do, but let me tell you, here's a few other ways you could possibly look at it. You could look at it this way, this way, or this way. Your choice, but understand that behind each of these doors, it's like on a game show. One yeah. of them leads to a new car, and the other two leads to trash. Yeah. So 
decide what you want to do and then live with your trash when you pick it. You yeah. know what I mean? And I and I think that was not done. I, I don't know, like I said, but I don't I don't think that somebody said to them, look, if you react this way, this is what's gonna happen. The whole house gonna come tumbling down. You know? I think also I, I, I come to the position that we love to celebrate. We don't want to do the work. So we'll celebrate that somebody's on the billboard, but we don't try to find out how that person went on the billboard. We yeah. will celebrate somebody signing a record deal, but we don't talk about the implications of signing that record deal, that you have to deliver a good product and that you have to work and market that product. We celebrate yes. before the celebration is supposed to start. And, and, and also that artists are some, sometimes we as in, in, the, in, in the music industry, basically, instead of, of, of trying to do the hard work, we'll play victim. We have this notion yeah. everybody thief in our stuff. Uh, there's yeah. an argument that, you know, Drake is thiefing this and everybody's a, the culture vulture label. But we are not doing anything. And the fact that we are taking elements of our music. Listen, give you an example. There are some artists now who are complaining that the people that are doing trap dancehall is not dancehall and is hip hop they are doing. But mm. all of those artists to break internationally, they had to collaborate with hip hop artists doing hip hop songs. So yeah, correct. What, what, what are we saying here, Steve? What are we saying or what, we, or what makes sense? That's two different questions. What, what, what we're saying is, is, is kind of like, um, to me, is that the boy, boy who cried wolf in a kind of situation or, 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 or the kid who, I don't even know how to put it. To me, cultural appropriation is a very interesting thing because to me, it's cultural appropriation when you don't tip your hat. That's what I think, right? Yeah. To, to me, I can get up as, as a Jamaican and I can go do a country rock and roll album, right? So long as I say, hey, here's my country rock and roll album, or here's my album that was influenced by country and rock and roll. Because when I was growing up, they used to play that song El Paso on the radio every morning when I was on my way to school, and it, and it dug into my conscience, and so I feel like I'm a cowboy. Okay, cool. I've, I've tipped my hat. I've said this is what I'm doing. You know, I, I've given respect to, to those who have come before me, and I think that's important. Um, I think it's important for one, out of respect, but two, out of education. I feel like a lot of the time, even in Jamaica, and I'm, and I'm guilty of it myself, I don't know enough about the precursor of what's on the radio right now. We, I don't know the history of our old music. It took me going to Midem in France and a white Rasta brother gave, stopped to give me on Friday night a ride to, um, to the hotel. And he was like, oh, you're from Jamaica? And I said, yeah. And he said, oh, which one you like better, King Toby or... I can't remember who else. And it's like old, Lee Scratch. Probably know. Lee Scratch. Yeah, Lee, it wasn't even Lee Scratch. Because Lee Scratch, I would have recognized at least the name. Okay. And I was like, me and friend look at each other like, I don't know enough about either of those guys' catalog to really make a comment. And the guy put in a cassette and educated us for the next 45 minutes on our own music. And when I heard it, I was like, oh, I can hear where this influence was on the radio. No. No. But I didn't know. Yeah. You understand? So yeah. that made me know, I, it, I think there's a responsibility. I go back to Jamaica and I educate myself. So mm -hmm. to me, it is the job of, of, of who's making that music. If, if I know so-and-so is my fan, I go and say to that person, yo, you know something? The reason you like a lot of what I do is because of Supercat yeah. or King Toby or Bob Marley or Jacob Miller 
or whatever, whatever, whatever. And 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 so you can go back and say, oh, I, and you know, and you, and you make this rock and roll is really good at doing that. Rock and roll always points back to Mississippi Delta blues. They yeah. always tell you, go check it out. That's where we got it from. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you go and you learn. So it to me, it's like it's it's cultural appropriation when you don't say, hey, this is where I got it from. This is what I'm doing. This is my influence. This is my vibe. I like it because this person really killed it and made a big influence on me. To me, that's cultural appropriation. Now, when you take enough paint from different colors or enough enough of different palettes, then I think you've gone on and you've created something original of your own. And you may not necessarily have to specifically say, okay, hey guys, this is where I took every single piece of color that I'm using from to make this new color. I think at that point you kind of be like, this is my music. You know what I mean? So it it it, 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 it can be blurry, but I always think it's good to be able to tip your hat. That's my cultural appropriation um, soapbox. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please subscribe to the show and give us a five-star review and even drop us a comment if something really stood out to you.